grow and so Pharaoh said, well, this is not working. The enslavement, the oppression is not working. We're going to do something else. Now I'm going to tell all of the Hebrew midwives that any baby boys that are born are going to be thrown into the Nile. And so the midwives go out, and of course they can't do that, so they don't. But Pharaoh calls the midwives back in and says, okay, so how's it going? And the midwives say, well, the Hebrew women are just not like the Egyptian women. Their babies are born before we even get there. And God honors the faithfulness of the midwives. And it says even blesses them with families. So it's kind of cool, right? So in the midst of all of this going on, Moses is born. And instead of throwing Moses into the Nile, his mom, who's a pretty epic woman that her name is not listed, bummer, but so she decides to put Moses in this basket. And we know this story. There's probably a song to go with it. I bet Tanae could bring out. <laughs> yeah, not today. <laughs> I'm sure there is one if I can. Yeah. There's a, there's a song for, for most of this story. Get, just wait till we get to the plagues. You may not be able to help. <laughs> may not be able to help yourself. So he gets put in the basket, right? She sends him down the river. His sister, Miriam, follows the basket. You know, you've seen Prince of Egypt, right? She follows the basket down the river, and she watches it. And she sees that Pharaoh's daughter discovers the basket, opens it up. And you would expect that the baby was, like, happy and cute, but no, he's crying. You know, so she takes pity on him, and she's like, you know, but what do I do? And so Miriam just, like, awkwardly pops out of the bushes, and she's like, oh, would you like me to fetch you a, a Hebrew mother to nurse him? And, and the Pharaoh's daughter is like, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I will take her. So, so like, that's the gift, right? Like, you get to have a baby, and they get paid to care for your baby. You know, they say motherhood is unpaid. So she does that. She goes and she gets Moses' mom and the, and takes care. she takes care of Moses until he's a little bit older. Then Moses returns to Pharaoh's house and gets raised there as um, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So then we know what happens next. He grows up and he is um, kind of in this weird situation where he, is, he has this other heritage but he is now a member of this other family in this other nation. But he witnesses something. He sees this Hebrew person that is being attacked by Egyptians. This Egyptian is beating on this Hebrew man. And he can't help himself. He goes to defend the Hebrew man, ends up killing the Egyptian, and then he becomes a refugee. He flees from Egypt because now Pharaoh is, is very mad. And when he flees from Egypt, he goes to Midian. And in Midian, he gets there, he finds a well, he like collapses down by the well, and he suddenly meets seven daughters from a priest in Midian named Jethro. And anytime you see, well first off, let me, let me back up. Guys, it's not that easy. <laughs> Just collapse by a well. Seven daughters, here they are. Um, but anytime we see the number seven in scripture, we should look backwards to creation and we should wonder what it is that God is about to create. Something new is happening. Something new is being created. And so he meets this family. He actually ends up marrying one of these daughters. And then do you remember how Moses, while he's in Megan, he goes and he sees the burning bush. And God speaks to him through the burning bush. And he tells him, God says, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cries, 
and I am coming to rescue them. Now you go. And Moses says, okay, you know, I'll go, but when I go and they ask me, who has sent me? Um, what should I tell them your name is? And God says, I am who I am. And it's also translated, I will be who I will be. And so Moses goes uh, to Pharaoh. And then here we have the story of the plagues and the many children's church songs that may have caused a little bit of PTSD there. But, you know, they're helpful. There were ten plagues, right? And each time that Moses would go to Pharaoh, he would say, you know, God has told me to tell you to let his people go. And Pharaoh would say no. No way, Yahweh. Use that one as much as you can. Um, <laughs> no um, He would say no. But if we think about it from the perspective of Pharaoh, this is kind of a, a hard thing to say yes to. Because at this point, he would be giving up literally tens of thousands of his workforce for this whole nation. So to just let them go, you know, and then not to mention that they've been enslaved. So you're going to let tens of thousands of very strong, mind you, Hebrew men and then women and children, you're going to let them go, and they're going to leave, and they're going to become their own nation, and they might be just a little bitter about the fact that you enslaved them for 430 years, so that may cause a problem for you, right? So there's a lot of reasons here why Pharaoh would not be just inclined to say yes, but that doesn't mean he's free of the consequences of that. So of course he says no. We have plague after plague after plague. And then do you remember the Passover? Do you remember how the Hebrew people, they, they put the blood of the lamb around the doorpost so that as God went through the, the city, that their families would be saved? And the Egyptians all lost the firstborn from their um, family members to their animals. And they woke up that next morning and... Pharaoh said, just go. And so they go. And they flee. But before leaving, um, Moses is sure to make sure he does not forget to grab Joseph's bones before he heads out, like you do. And they flee. But it's not long. You know the story, right? Just a few minutes. And Pharaoh's like, wait, what was I thinking? And so he changes his mind, and he sends the army after them. And as you remember from a few weeks ago when Kevin preached, they get up to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming. And just upon seeing Pharaoh's army, the, the people of Israel look at them, and they're like, Moses, what did you do to us? We had it so good. Like, we had three square meals. Our life was pretty great. I mean, how long? Like, a few days? You guys, and you're already forgetting what it was like to be enslaved. And so they're, they're thrown into full and total panic. Do you remember that? Do you remember how Moses did not slap them across the face? That's part of the story. He did not. I think I might have. He did not. He said instead, he said, do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. And then God parted the Red Sea. And then from there, they begin to head towards Canaan. Right? This is the land that way back with Abraham, God said, this is the land that I am promising to your 
generations that I will bless you with. So this land has been in mind for thousands of years, right? They're heading towards Canaan two and a half months into the trek this direction. And the people go right back into the same rhetoric against Moses. Have you brought us out here to die? Why did you make us come with you? We had it so good back in Egypt. We really, really are good homesick. We miss it. And Moses, again, does not slap him across the face. But instead, God provides manna and quail in the desert, which is huge. Like, are you connecting how all these pieces, like, tie in? This is, this is your story. Like, I'm telling our story. It's not the story of Moses or the story of Abraham or the story of Joseph or the story of Jacob or Israel or any of these people. It's, it's our story. So as you're hearing it and you're, you're thinking through, like, what does it mean that God provided manna and quail to the Israelites in the desert? And what does it mean for us that when he provided the manna and quail in the desert, that he said, don't gather more than you need for today. Only gather what you need for today. And what does it mean that even though he said that, the Israelites still gathered more than they needed? And that they still tried to keep it until the next day? And of course, they wake up in the morning and it's covered in, well, really gross things. You know, it's unedible. But despite their disobedience, there on the ground is fresh manna and quail. And then what does it mean that even in the midst of this, like, very daily provision, that God still says, I want you to Sabbath? And what does it mean that we get all the way up to Sabbath, and on the day before Sabbath, God does provide more so that they can keep it on the night and have it on the Sabbath day? so that they will not go out and gather on the Sabbath. But how do we see ourselves in the story when we hear that, oh wait, but they did. <laughs> they still did. They still went out on the Sabbath and tried to gather. But of course there was nothing there because God had already provided and this was the day for them to stop. So we have the Israelites in the desert kind of experiencing a little bit of, like, hashtag trust issues, you know. And they're trying to figure out what it means to be a people. And so Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. These, at the time, now we read them kind of like old school. At the time, these were crazy radical laws. And these were laws that we see maybe as, like, like laws, but they actually brought freedom and they actually gave life. So we have to like kind of listen to the story over the shoulder of, of the original audience. So they received these laws, but the people were waiting on Moses and they're like, I don't know, I mean, we've been gone kind of a long time. We're kind of bored, so. Like, I think maybe we'll make, like, a golden cap or something, you know. It's like, you can take Israel out of Egypt, you can't take Egypt out of Israel, you know. So they do that. Like, they make a golden cap while they're waiting on Moses, you know, who's up on the mountain. 
And Moses comes down from the mountain carrying these like two massive tablets written on both sides of each tablet by the hand of God and sees a golden calf. And do you know what he does? He does what every single one of us would at least want to do, if not actually do. He straight up chucks those tablets onto the ground and gets mad. <laughs> like so mad. Why is there a gold baby cow down here? I was gone for 40 days. Like, come on, you guys. We literally have been three months away from Egypt. Like, do you hear that? Three months? Three months from Egypt. Three months from being enslaved. Three months from the parting of the Red Sea, from the Exodus. And three months later, Moses leaves for like five minutes, and they're making golden cows to worship. So eventually, um, Moses does get a second copy of the Ten Commandments. You probably figured that out. So it's all good. But eventually they do make it over to the land of Canaan. And when they get there, Moses sends out 12 spies, right? They're supposed to go into land because there's people living there. And they're supposed to kind of feel out what it's going to be like. And 10 of them come back, and they're afraid. And they say, oh, yeah, no, we, we cannot go over there. There's giants. There's, like, all kinds of things happening. We do not need to be a part of that. Like, I'm hoping that there's a plan B. But two of them, which was Caleb and Joshua, they said, this is where the Lord has directed us. The Lord will fight for us. We should be strong and courageous. We should move forward. And so the people, though, unfortunately followed the ten instead of the two, or three if you count Moses, four if you count Aaron. You know, but they followed the ten in their fear and in their worries. And there's a part of the story that maybe we don't realize. So once once this group makes it all the way up to this point in the story, um, just before this in scripture, it talks about how Aaron has died. So I guess we won't count Aaron in on the four, so three. Three to ten. Okay. But he has died. And when it says he died, it says he died after 14 years and two months from the time they left Egypt. So this, this process of like leaving Egypt, the Exodus, the Red Sea, and now they're heading towards the Promised Land, but that journey there in the middle was at least 14 years and two months. Like, I don't know if they expected that. You know, I was thinking through this. Like, they're enslaved in Egypt. They've been there 430 years, not each of them, but, you know. So they haven't been places. You know, they don't know how long it takes to get to Canaan from Egypt. So maybe they kind of were thinking, like, God's promised us this land, so this should be happening, like, next week or so. Like, a, maybe a few months, you know, year tops. And then 14 years and two months in, Aaron dies. Not a good sign. You know, he didn't even make it. He's one of the, like, prime leaders of this thing. And they get all the way down to, to where they're ready to cross in, and they are weary. Because they've been in the wilderness for 14 years. And they're tired. And they've been eating manna for 14 years. And they get all the way up there. And they decide that they're not going to follow Moses. And Moses says to God, God, how, how long am I going to need to, to lead these people? Like, How long are they going to rebel against you? How long will I have to, to try to drag them along into your plan? And God says, well, you won't. Because now you get to wander in the desert for 40 years until everyone from this generation over the age of 20 has died. 
And then the next generation will be the ones that actually get to walk into the promised land. And so by the time they actually get to Canaan, by the time we actually get to the book of Joshua, which is where our text is today, we're getting close, you guys. So by the time we actually get there, the only people that saw the Red Sea, that remember enslavement in Egypt, that were not children, are Caleb and Joshua, the leaders. And everybody else was either under the age of 20 or they were born in wilderness. And so for the last 40 years, for most of all of those people's lives, they have lived in wilderness. And they've been eating manna for most of their life. Think about that for just a minute. That's kind of crazy. Do you ever feel like you're in wilderness? Like you're in this season of life that just feels like wilderness? And then imagine, and maybe this is true for you, but imagine that being the greater of your life experience. And this is where they were. Are you, are you there with them? Do you see how this is your story? So, after they do this walk, they come back up to Canaan. Moses has died. And Joshua steps into this leadership role. So they get up there, and because this group of people um, only remembers wilderness, and because they attribute that to the disobedience of their ancestors, they are like full steam ahead. Like this is the group you want to be a leader of, because they keep telling Joshua, uh, yeah, Joshua, they keep saying like, man, we are with you, whatever you tell us to do, God, whatever you say to do, we are doing it, we are ready. So they get up to that point, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho, which is the first city that they will come to. And the spies get there, and here's the cool thing. Um, everybody in Canaan already knew that the Israelites were coming, and that God was bringing them there, their God, Yahweh, was bringing them there to occupy Canaan. So everybody already knew. This was not a surprise attack. Nobody was, like, caught off guard. But they fully knew. So when they saw two Hebrews walk into Jericho, like the word spread really quick. So they, they just quickly kind of like came in the gate and then ducked into Rahab's um, house, who was a prostitute, because her house was right there on the gate. So you imagine like the city wall, you know, now, now you can reference like veggie tales if you have that back here somewhere. You know, so you have like the wall of Jericho, and in the wall there's like a little window, and that's Rahab's house. Okay, so her house was in the wall. And so they stay there, but the word gets to the king, so the king, I don't know that the king comes down, but probably sends his people. And they're like, you know, where are these men? And Rahab lies, and she's like, well, they've already left, but if you hurry... You might can catch them. And so they hurry. And so she gets them out from hiding, and she sends them down a rope outside the wall of Jericho. And she says, run, flee. They're going this way. You go that way. And they respond to her, and they say, okay, when we come back, you put this red cord in your window, and you and your family and everyone that's in this house will be spared. So here's another cool thing, side tangent. Like, at that time, if you knew your city was about to be attacked, like, you're not going to hang around if you don't have to. So a lot of times, like, with Jericho, it's very likely this city would have mostly been empty aside from the people who were, like, in the militia. But she stayed. So there's, like, a trust thing happening there. That's really cool. 
So, anyway, before they can go to Jericho, the people of Israel, they have to cross the Jordan River. And so they do. And do you know how they cross the Jordan River? The same way they cross the Red Sea. Did you know that? Isn't that cool? It divides in half, like in the exact same way. And they walk through the middle of it. And as they're walking, one person from each tribe of Israel, because there's 12 tribes, they gather a stone from the bottom of the river. And when they get to the other side, this generation, who is maybe slightly smarter than the one before, they want to make sure that they remember what God did. And so they've made a, a memorial out of these stones. They stacked them as a sign so that they could remember that God brought them through the Jordan and into Canaan. So that was something to help them with their memory problems, which you obviously see is a true, real problem. So they get there, they walk, they go through the Jordan River, and then Joshua hears from the Lord how it is that they are to overtake the city. And you know how it goes. They have to rock, walk around the walls for several days while the Jerichoites will taunt them and throw slushies on them, you know. And then at the last day, they all yell, which is really great if you've seen uh, Veggie Tales, because they all have, like, nasally yell, and it's pretty awesome. So they yell, the walls come down, you know, the whole thing. And then for the rest of the book, pretty much, it's this story after story after story of the Israelites going through Canaan and conquering city after city after city. And it's violent, and there's a lot of bloodshed, and it makes me a little uncomfortable. And sometimes when you talk to people about the book of Joshua, they'll say, like, oh, yeah, that book's awful because it has to do with genocide. And I, I do want to correct that because, yes, there's bloodshed, there's war, there's violence. Um, there's a lot of problems. Genocide was not one of them. And here's a cool piece of why. Because this land of Canaan was actually a very transient area. And so there was not just one ethnic group that was represented in this land, but there was lots and lots. Because of where it is located, it's like an area you have to pass through. So as God is preparing Israel to be a tribe, to be a nation that is to bless other tribes, which if you were here for the flood narrative sermon, like, well, that was like a month and a half ago, but how radical that was, because otherwise tribes were just in it to self-preserve. Like, that is all that anybody knew. So to have a tribe come along and say, we're not here to just keep ourselves alive, we're actually here to bless other tribes, was like flat out crazy. So of course the place that you need to be to bless other tribes is a place where other tribes are going to pass through. So this was a very intentional place that God had in mind and had planned for his people to be. So, they get there. <sighs> this is a long story. But it's a good story. Are you with me? We're going we're gonna to connect all the pieces. It's all important to know. Because otherwise, some of it doesn't like sink in and make as much sense until you've heard it all in this unbroken chain. Okay. We talked about Rahab. I have to find my place now. Blessings of tribes. Okay. Flood narrative. We Yes. Okay. All right. Um, the violence. We have to talk about the violence because that's that's a really hard one, and we can't just like skip over that. Um, when we look at this this whole war, conquest, violence thing that we see, not just in this book, but actually through other places in Scripture, even the New Testament, um, 
we have to like step into this space. So at that time, in this time, and in this place, and with these people, the way that war happened is that it really had nothing to do with like nations warring. It had more to do with God's warring. Okay, so it wasn't like, you know, like this is us against you. This was like, this is our God. We're going to prove our God is the better God. And you can, you can see. You know. So this is kind of, this is the culture in which people understand their relationship with God, how they understand that God functions and God works. And so when we think about that worldview, and we think about that state of consciousness, how is it that that might impact the way that these people would tell the story of God? How might that impact the way that they understand who God is? And then I wonder how our own culture impacts the way that we hear these stories, or the way that we tell these stories, or the way that we do not tell these stories. And then this is where we need the whole story to understand this one moment in the story. Uh, one last thing, and then we're going to get to reading our actual text and then the sermon. <laughs> Okay, where's the list? All right. I know. I know. Um, last thing. Joshua gathers everyone together in the text that we're going to read. And he tells them a story. Now, it's the story I just told you. So when you hear the text, it's going to fill in all those blanks. But he tells them a story. And the story is being told so that it would remind them of who they are. But there's a part of this story that's just really, really profound. And it's really, really good. And it's really validating. Okay? He says that he sent out ahead of the Israelites through the land of Canaan, a hornet. Now, does anybody else hate stinging insects as much as I do? Right? Hornets, wasps, bees I tolerate because we need them to live, but hornets and wasps serve really no purpose in my book. And the cool thing and the profound thing and the validating thing about this is that a hornet in this in this word usage in scripture is referring to terror and panic. He sent out a hornet. And I can't help but think like this would make a really, really good like kids movie, you know, like the little hornet, he has his own little like whole life story narrative. We follow him through all of the Canaan and like everyone's like, ah, you know, and <laughs> where's this? and be fully overcome by terror and panic. I've noticed there's about three responses to this, okay? The first response is the most holy. It's where you are fully at peace with the hornet. I think this is probably the level of consciousness maybe Jason is at, where the hornet comes at you, and you welcome the hornet, and you say, <laughs> and then the hornet goes, 
And you just live at peace with one another. And, and you're not in terror or panic. So he aspired to number one. But but the more common response is like two and three, right? One of them is where where you like it's kind of like when you walk into a spider web. You know, you like full ninja comes out. And then the other one is like when this is kind of what I do. When you're talking to someone and you're in mid-conversation and then they just go the flash, you know, and they just run. And they're like gone. You know, and that's kind of the second one. We either we either defend ourselves like ninjas, you know, or we're just like out of there, you know, like we're done. So that's what that's what terror and panic kind of do to us in relation to encountering a stinging insect. But it is also what we see that happens in the story. So when you think about when Moses went to Pharaoh, right, and there's all the plagues, and he says, "Let my people go." Pharaoh chooses the way of the ninja, right? He's he's like, no. Like, I will not let my people go, and, and you bring your plagues, bring it. And so he does, right? God does. So this happens, and then you have Canaan, where God comes through the nation, and he, in whatever way he did, by way of hornet or however that looked, every single city knew that God was giving Israel, now, Yahweh God, not their God, Yahweh God, so it's kind of like, well... You know, you're like cost-benefit analysis this thing. Like, is your God going to be better than my God? I don't know. Like, let's, let's like keep score a little and see. You know, so, but some of them, some of them actually just flee, fled. They fled. You know, some of them did. They just left because they knew that God was saying this land is going to be for the Israelite people. And so they said, okay, we're out of here. We don't want to, we don't want to do that. And so they left. And then other people kind of like tightened their grips, Right. And they're like, no, this is my land, and this is my city, and this is what I have built, and I'm going to keep this. I'm going to defend this. I don't care what God says. And so that was cities like, you know, like Jericho. Okay. Should we read our scripture? <laughs> Y'all seem so nervous. All right. Let's read it. This is in Joshua 24, 1 through 26. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the, and the, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Long ago, your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in its midst. And afterwards, I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. 
And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did to Egypt. Afterwards, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I handed them over to you, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then King Balak, son of Zippor of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent and invited Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you. So I rescued you out of his hand. When you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hizzites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I handed them over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove out before you two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and towns that you had not built, and you live in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and oliviers that you did not plant. Now, therefore, revere the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight. He protected us along all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed, the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. I'm not going to start my sermon now, don't worry. Side note, they did rebury the bones of Joseph just after this text.
so that did happen. And they did carry them around for however many years that was. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you these stories because they're your stories. Because so many nights I crawl in bed with my girls and they say, tell us a story. And so I break out these very creative and elaborate whimsical stories of castles and dragons. And, and I later sit back and I think, like, how are these stories forming and shaping them and helping them understand who they are? And how are they learning these stories in such a way that they can begin to think about where they are in these stories? Because to really, really know something, you have to be able to apply it. Like you have to really, really know it. It can't be on the first reading or the second or the tenth, right? Like we hear these stories over and over and over and then we're able to see where we are in them and connect how they are part of our story as well. So where do you see yourself in the story? Are you walking across the Jordan River or the Red Sea? Do you feel, feel weary from the wilderness? Are you afraid to leave the wilderness? Are you standing in Canaan, feeling like God is moving you away from what is familiar, from what you have built? Are you Pharaoh holding on to what God is asking for? Are you Moses trying to lead children who are easily distractible? Are you an Israelite that has forgotten who you are or what God has done? Are you afraid of what God may ask you to do if you made space for God to move? Are you building golden calves? Are you ready to enter the new land, fully committed to serving God at all costs? Are you Rahab, doing what is right but not sure how it's going to turn out, but hanging that red cord anyhow? Are you Miriam, rejoicing over what God has done? Do you feel impatient, waiting for God? Are you one of the spies? Worried about this new direction and hoping that there is a plan B? Do you feel like Moses? You're gone for five minutes and everything falls apart. Remember the story. Tell the story. And remember that it's your story. In closing, I want to read this one last passage. It's actually from Deuteronomy. It's one of my absolute favorites in all the Bible. Is in Deuteronomy 8. It says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and when you settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget that the Lord your God 
brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. And you may say to yourself, my power and my strength and my hands produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word and for this story. I thank you that while each of us have our own narratives, that this is a narrative that embraces all of us. This is the story that has been told and is still being told. I thank you that you are with us when we are in the wilderness. God, when we're in between leaving a place of being enslaved and reaching your promise, this middle place that that feels a lot like the kingdom of heaven that's arriving, but it hasn't yet arrived. And so, God, as we come to you from all these different places, in this story and in our story, and God, as we look to remember who we are starting here, I pray that you would help us to remember. God, I pray that these stories would be fresh on our lips. I pray that we would read them and we would tell them. And I pray that they would be the stories that we live into with our life. The story of redemption and of hope and of love. And a God that is holy and different and that calls us to be the same. We love you and we need you. Amen.